Thank you, church. What an appropriate song this morning. I know of no more appropriate promise that we probably need to hold on to in the very crazy days that we find ourselves in than the promise that no matter what is going on around us, our God will hold us. And He will hold us close and fast as we just sang. Um, If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open up to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to look at a text there for a second, but then you'll see, hopefully, if, if, if you haven't already, you can grab a copy of a worship guide in front of you. There are some notes there uh, for you to take on today's message, for those of you that are note takers, but you will see in there that we're going to be looking at several different scriptures, so you're going to have to use your Bible drill skills this morning to be able to look up some of these scriptures. Uh, we will try to put them on the screen for you as well, uh, but I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 22 as we look at the subject of kingdom faithfulness in a season of political turmoil. Now, uh, before we start the message, let me just remind you, those of you who are members of Central Park, you probably have received by now a packet in the mail about our harvest offering. Our harvest offering day uh, starts with, uh, with you bringing uh, your envelopes and your pledge cards back starting next week, November the 8th, and going through the next several weeks. So be praying this week. Uh, be praying diligently about what the Lord would have you to give to the harvest offering. If you did not get one, or if you are not a member of the church, but you would like more information about the harvest offering, there are some white envelopes that are available on the offering boxes as you leave, and you can grab one of those, and all that information is in there as well. Now, I'm diverting this morning from my normal pattern of preaching because, specifically, I've been felt impressed by the Spirit over the last six weeks or so that I needed to take some time to address us as a faith family about how can we keep our sanity and our trust in God in the midst of an extremely toxic and divisive political climate that we currently find ourselves in. And this is a different approach for me because my core conviction is that I believe deeply in text-driven, gospel-centric preaching. I don't always preach through a book of the Bible like the book of Colossians that we just finished, but... Even when I'm preaching on a topical series, um, it is usually something that is a text that is driving the subject matter that day in which we spend most of our time primarily in one text, expositing and exegeting that text to find out how, what God's Word says about that particular topic or subject. However, today we're going to be looking at multiple texts because there really isn't one central text in the Scriptures that treats the subject of a believer's approach to politics and elections in a comprehensive way. That being said, the Word of God does have several texts that collectively can provide us with a comprehensive framework for how we as followers of Jesus Christ should approach our response to government and to the myriad of political issues that we face as citizens of an earthly nation in the midst of a fallen world. And so today I want us to begin with Matthew chapter 22 and see as the Pharisees and the religious teachers approached Jesus with a really a political question, a a question about how they should approach a very sticky political issue of their day, which was whether or not the people of God should be paying taxes to a pagan and oppressive government whose nation was steeped in idolatry. And many people in the first century were wrestling over the fact of, as the people of God, should we be giving money to fund a country that occupies us and and that has such godlessness and, and such rampant idolatry within it? 
Now the Pharisees, as the text will say in just a second, had ulterior motives for asking this question, and their motives were to try to trap Jesus in between the church and the state. But the question that they asked was an important question grounded in important political and cultural issues that first century Jews were wrestling with. And that question specifically was, how can we maintain faithfulness to Jehovah in the midst of being submissive to a pagan government and a pagan culture? And so we're going to start with this today, and let's read Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. The scriptures say, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, Jesus, in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, and they try to flatter him, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Now, as I said, the, fair, the question that the Pharisees asked Jesus that day was a loaded p- political question that was grounded primarily in the issues of religious liberty and biblical faithfulness. And likewise, we don't necessarily face this particular question, but we face similar sticky questions in our culture today, such as, should Christian business owners and service providers submit to or be forced to comply with providing services for events that are in opposition to their biblical convictions? Or, can Christians vote for a candidate who personally endorses free access to abortion? Or how do we, as biblically faithful Christians, have biblically faithful policies in our country regarding immigration and the naturalization and ethical treatment of those who would seek asylum in our nation and improvement to their lives in our country? How do we navigate through issues like that? And each of these questions that we face, and and dozens and dozens of others, have potential political landmines that we must navigate as followers of Jesus with biblical clarity and with commitment to Jesus as our King while we submit to the leaders of the nation in which we live. Jesus' answer to the religious leaders was an impressive answer such that it silenced them. They marveled when they went away. And the reason why is because His answer to them was grounded in biblical wisdom. And that particular answer, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's, has set a precedent for the church ever since when it comes to issues of politics and government. This principle of rendering to Caesar the things that are his and to God's the things that are his is the, is the core conviction of the Baptist Faith and Message article on religious liberty. And many of you may not know that as Southern Baptists we have a doctrinal statement that, that kind of unifies us as Southern Baptist churches. And, and in it there is an article on religious liberty that reads as such, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and he has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are contrary to his word or not contained in it. Church and state should be separate. The state owes to every church 
protection and full freedom in the pursuit of its spiritual ends. In providing for such freedom, no ecclesiastical group or denomination should be favored by the state more than others. Civil government being ordained of God, it is the duty of Christians to render loyal obedience thereto in all things not contrary to the revealed will of God. The church should not resort to the civil power to carry on its work. The gospel of Christ contemplates spiritual means alone for the pursuit of its ends. Likewise, the state has no right to impose penalties for religious opinions of any kind. The state has no right to impose taxes for the support of any form of religion. A free church and a free state is the Christian ideal, and this implies the right of free and unhindered access to God on the part of all men and the right to form and propagate opinions in the sphere of religion without interference by the civil power. It's an excellent statement on what we as Christians should use as a framework for how the church and the state coexist as institutions both founded by God. But reading these verses, like Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, where Jesus says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's, that verse has led many Christians to believe that the things of Caesar and the things of God are separate entities that have no correlation to one another. It's often pictured as two different spheres, and and over here you have one sphere, you have one circle, and these are the things of Caesar, and these things include politics and government and taxes and issues like that. And this is Caesar's domain, and over here you have God's domain, and God's domain is things such as worship and faith and the church. And these two separate entities exist coexist side by side, but they're not really to have anything to do with one another. However, I am grateful for Jonathan Lehman in a recent book that he wrote called How the Nations Rage, in which he actually says that what Christ is saying there is very different than what most of us read when we read these words. Jesus, when he looked at the coin and he asked the, the, the teachers of the law, whose image was on the coin, the obvious answer was Caesar. But there was also an underlining question that was implied in Jesus' question, which is, whose image is on Caesar? And the answer to that is God's. Caesar was a person created in the image of God. And so rendering unto God... What is God's also includes Caesar himself. And likely Jesus was not advocating that we push God and the things of God into the private domain. Instead, Jesus was likely saying that the things of Caesar are included in the domain of God, but that Christ always triumphs Caesar. Instead of having two spheres which coexist side by side, it's really that you have one small sphere in this world in which the things of Caesar exist, and you have a much larger sphere which encompasses the things of Caesar, which are the things that belong to God. And the challenge for us as followers of Jesus Christ is how to find ways to properly render unto Caesar the things that are his while keeping our primary allegiance and faithfulness to King Jesus. So before I get to the notes in your text, and we're going to look at a few scriptures, let me, let me tell you a few things that I'm not going to do in today's message. Okay? 
First of all, I am not going to endorse a particular political presidential candidate or party platform. Neither will I tell you how you should vote in Tuesday's election or in any election. Jimmy, are those notes up there? I think we put those up there. All right. So here's some biblically-based ground rules. Oh, well, these, these are not up there. I'm sorry. I'm, I apologize, Jimmy. That's on me. So I'm not going to endorse a particular political or presidential candidate or platform. I'm not going to tell you how you should vote in Tuesday's election. And the reason for that is that the issue of voting should be something that is informed by a person's conscience in light of the revealed truth of God's Word. Your vote in any election is a matter of your personal conviction. My goal as a pastor is to help you ground that conviction in God's Word. And it is my firm belief that nobody should ever vote for or against a candidate simply because their pastor or their spiritual mentor told them to. Second thing I'm not going to do today is I'm not going to advocate today that the United States of America is the last hope for the gospel in this world or the last vestige in our world of a Christian nation. Now let me be clear, I deeply love my country. I am very patriotic and I'm very grateful for the freedoms that we have as people in this nation. But I was watching the other day as a, as a friend of mine posted an article that I really didn't agree with from a Christian political standpoint. I understood the meaning behind it, but I did some research on the website in which it was posted from, and one of the core convictions of the website was that America is the city on a hill shining the light of the gospel out to the world. But let me be very clear. The city on a hill in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 is not a reference to the United States of America. It's a reference to the church of God. God has instituted several organizations into society for human good and flourishing. And those institutions are the family, the church, government, business, and many others. And we want all of them to be submitted to Jesus Christ. But we need to also keep in mind that the hope of the gospel spread throughout the world for 1,600 years before the United States of America was ever founded. So the United States of America is not the last hope of the gospel in this world. As a matter of fact, missiologists tell us that of the number of followers of Jesus Christ in the world today, those of us who occupy the United States of America make up 15% of all the followers of Jesus Christ. A hundred years ago, we made up 80%. Third thing I'm not going to do today is I'm not going to tell you that it doesn't matter which way you vote or whether or not you vote. I believe that elections have consequences. And I believe that some consequences can have long-reaching generational effects. I believe that the right to vote is a freedom from Christ that believers are called to steward according to the truths of God's Word. I believe God's Word makes it very clear how He desires us as His people to live. And our vote should be a reflection of what God has revealed in His Word. And so voting matters, and how you vote matters. I have not always voted on issues correctly. I have voted for issues that I later changed my mind on once I examined God's Word carefully. And so for that reason, I'm not going to tell you as a pastor, it's not my job to stand up here and tell you how you should vote in particular elections. And I will lastly say, the last thing I'm not going to do is I'm not going to solve all the complex issues of politics in the church in one sermon. <laughs> 
So with that being said, let me give you on the screen what I told Jimmy a second ago, a few biblically-based ground rules that I believe the Scriptures demonstrate for us. These are principles that the Scriptures demonstrate for us about our relationship to government and politics. These are not in your notes for just, we couldn't put them all in there for, 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 for sake of space. But let me go through these really quickly. Number one, government is a God-ordained institution created for the purpose of preserving good, promoting justice, and advancing human flourishing to the glory of God. That's the purpose of government according to God's Word. Government is a God-ordained institution. Government was not something that was created by men. It was something that was created by God. It's something that we see God instituting after the flood in Genesis chapter 6. And God gave government for the purpose of preserving good in society, promoting justice, and punishing evil, and advancing all human flourishing to His glory. Secondly, all politicians and elected leaders are fallen sinners who operate in a broken system in a broken world. And let me say that again. All politicians and all elected leaders are by nature fallen sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so they're fallen sinners who operate in a broken political system in the midst of a broken world. For that reason, number three, no political party has ever had or will have an exclusively Christian or biblical platform. No political party, ever. In the United States of America, in old Europe, no political party has ever had or will have an exclusively Christian or biblical platform. I believe that you can find some truths, biblical truths on some issues in both political parties sometimes. That being said, I do believe that what we've seen in the last 30 or 40 years is an increasing shift in one political party away from many of the biblical principles that we as followers of Christ hold dear. Very key, important political issues. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that this one particular party is the Christian biblical party or that the platform that they endorse is the Christian view of all things. I found it very interesting when I was a young man in my early 20s and I used to get one of those voter guides to find out that it was the biblical platform that we should support term limits in Congress. As I read Scripture, I don't see anything in Scripture that talks about whether or not we should have term limits. But this one institution told everybody that, that, that the, the party that supported term limits was the biblical Christian viewpoint. Number four, not all political issues carry the same weight according to the Word of God. I believe there are some political issues that we as followers of Jesus Christ should be more concerned about than others. I believe there are some political issues which the Bible speaks very clearly on. I believe there are other political issues to which the Bible doesn't directly address. And so the Bible doesn't have the same weight on all issues that we face. Number five, Christians are not called to agree on every political issue. The Bible does not call us to be in uniformity with regard to all our views on every political issue. But we are called to pursue unity and to promote Christ in the midst of personal disagreements. 
And then finally, number six. Christians are sometimes called to exhibit civil disobedience when the government promotes that which is contrary to the Word of God. We see this in Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. When Nebuchadnezzar set up an idol and said that everyone was to bow down and three three biblically informed Hebrew men said, we will not bow down. Know this, king, you can blow that trumpet, you can throw us in that furnace, but we will not bow down. We see Daniel when he's been told that he can't pray to anybody other than King Darius, go up into his room in his prayer, in his prayer um, uh, attic and open up the doors and pray to his God in civil disobedience to the laws. Sometimes we're called to exhibit civil disobedience. And we see that going on in our country now when we see Christian business owners and service providers who refuse to do certain things and end up facing fines, penalties, or the potentiality of their businesses being shut down. Now, real quickly, in the time that I have left, I want to look at five scriptures that I think will help us maintain kingdom faithfulness in a season of political turmoil. And because we have five scriptures and we don't have a lot of time, I cannot exposit each of these verses at length. So I'm simply going to read them for you and give you an overarching principle that I want you to go and study them more on your own. So let's talk about what the scriptures tell us about Christians and the government. Number one, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, reads as follows, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he, the ruler, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For this you pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. And then Paul summarizes it by saying, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. The principle that Paul tells us here is simply this, that Christians are to conscientiously and respectfully submit to the temporal authority of government while trusting in the ultimate authority of God. We are to understand that God has instituted government as an authority over us and that Christians are to submit to the authority of God, that government ultimately derives its authority from God and elected leaders have ultimate accountability to God for how they rule. As such, Christians are to pay honor and respect to those whom God has placed in authority. Even when they institute policies that we disagree with. Even when they institute policies that we believe compromise God's Word. At no point in time are we to show them dishonor and disrespect. Likewise, we are to respectfully submit to just Laws, not to unjust ones, but to just ones. And we are to pay taxes in order to enable government to function. So Romans 13 tells us that we are to conscientiously and respectfully submit to this temporal authority that God has given government. 
and do so while we trust in the ultimate authority of God that government derives its authority from God and that while we may have rulers over us who don't represent God or His Word, they don't have to answer to us. They do in a sense when it comes time for the next election. But ultimate answerability is not to us. Ultimate answerability is to Jehovah. Second verse that I think informs this subject is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. We saw this a few weeks ago when we went through 1 Peter earlier this year and we talked about this particular issue of Christians and submission to government. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 13 through 17 uh, say the following. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. That freedom is not something that's grounded in the Constitution. That freedom is something that is grounded in the cross of Christ. Live as people who are free but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. I believe 1 Peter chapter 2 teaches us this principle, that Christians are to have supreme respect for the Lord and supreme love for one another while doing good for our neighbor and showing honor to the state. We as followers of Christ are to have supreme respect and love reserved for the Lord and supreme love for one another. And we're to seek to do good for our neighbor according to 1 Peter chapter 2, but we also do that good while showing honor to the state. Again, Peter, just like Paul in Romans, shows us that God has given the authority to government And that we're to be subject for the Lord's sake to the human institutions that God has ordained. Whether it's the emperor as the supreme governing authority or the governors who are sent locally. Peter wrote these words, we need to remember, to a people who were at that time facing increasing persecution from an oppressive Roman government. There were brothers and sisters in Christ who heard these words who had seen their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ imprisoned. And it wouldn't be very long from here that Peter himself would be killed for being a follower of Jesus. It wouldn't be very long from these words that that we would see emperors rise up who would seek to stamp out the Christian movement by martyring and murdering many, many, many followers of Jesus Christ. And yet God, through His Spirit, said to the church, be subject to the institutions, show honor to the state. We're to show love for all people, honor to the state, and supreme love to God and to our brothers and sisters in Christ. The third verse that we see is found in the book of Titus. In Titus chapter 3, the first two verses, verses 1 and 2, read this. Remind them, the church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy to all people. The principle that Paul tells Titus to remind the church in Crete is that Christians are to be submissive and obedient to the state while working within the parameters of government to do good and show respect and love for all people. 
That Christians are to be submissive to the authority of the state while also working actively and eagerly within the authority the state provides for us to do good for all people. And it tells us here specifically that we as God's people are to be marked by gentleness and courtesy to all, even those with whom we have strong political disagreements. That Christians are to avoid evil speech and quarreling against those that God has placed in our path. Christians are not to be marked by political disagreements, but we're to be marked by gospel grace. We saw this in Colossians chapter 4. Let your speech always be seasoned with grace so that you may know how you ought to answer every person. Then we see in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The principle that Paul teaches us in 1 Timothy 2 is that we as Christians are to practice regular prayer for all in authority while seeking to live lives of peaceful, godly, and dignified trust in God. God makes it clear in 1 Timothy that Christians are to pray for our governmental and spiritual authorities. You are not called by God to agree with everything they say, and you are not called to agree with everything that they do, but you are called to pray for them as our leaders. And we are called to lead peaceful and quiet lives that are marked by godliness and dignity even when we respectfully disagree with unjust or unbiblical policies. And we understand that submission does not mean complete and total separation. Submission does not mean that we separate our policies from our convictions. It does mean that when we oppose government, we do so in a way that is grounded in godly and dignified behavior, civil disobedience. And then finally, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, one that I find great comfort in right now in the midst of what we've seen over the last six or seven months. Solomon writes in Proverbs 1, 1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he wills. The principle that I gain from this is that Christians are to trust that God is completely sovereign over all earthly rulers and to trust that God is still leading even when personal circumstances may say otherwise. Proverbs, Solomon writes this to help us remember that again, all government derives its authority from from the Lord. And that ultimately the heart of the king is like the heart of all people. It's in the hand of the Lord and the Lord directs them wherever he wants to direct them. So no matter what happens in any election, we are to remember that our God is in control. Our ultimate hope and allegiance isn't to who occupies the White House or the governor's mansion because the kingdom of God will outlast all earthly nations including the United States of America. And recently I've been reminded and comforted by this truth as I've been asked by several people about the importance of this election and the possible implications this election may have on the church and the people of God in the near and far future. And I have been led scripturally to understand that God will always ensure the survival of the people of God and the advancement of the church of God. 
Jesus said himself upon the confession of Peter that upon that rock he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And I firmly believe that if the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, then neither will the halls of government. The church of Jesus Christ will outlast each and every congressional session and each and every presidential tenure because our survival is grounded in the promise of God and not the prosperity of our nation. The people of God, from just a biblical perspective, survived over 400 years of enslavement under the brutal regime of Pharaoh in Egypt. The people of God survived the wicked and idolatrous regime of Ahab and several other wicked kings that led the nation into horrible idolatry and sin and brought consequential judgment upon the entire nation. And the people of God still survived. The people of God survived exportation and captivity to the most wicked city on the planet under the brutal regime of King Nebuchadnezzar. And they survived the idolatrous and wicked reign of Darius of Persia. The people of God survived the wicked and murderous reigns of Nero and Diocletian in the first century that murdered thousands of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the people of God continue to survive because the survival of God's people does not rest in the comfort of our circumstances, but in the sovereign purposes of our God. The people of God will survive each and every presidential election. But just because we have the promise of our survival does not mean that we simply crawl back into passive withdrawal from culture or politics. We are called by the Bible to be salt and light in a dark and broken world. We are called to use the freedoms that God has given us to advance God's kingdom in ways that the world will oppose. We may one day be put in prison. We may one day be ostracized from the marketplace. But we cannot be passive and we cannot be silent about the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, real quickly in closing, let me give you what I would call five kingdom faithfulness choices with regards to politics. Based on these scriptures and several others in the Word of God, let me tell you how, how I think we as the people of God navigate this really weird political toxic climate. And by the way, let's remember, as, as crazy as 2020 has been, politics has always been toxic. Go back and study the first few years of the founding of our nation and look at what the political leaders said to and about one another in that day. We've never had civil elections. But here's some choices that I choose and that I hope you will choose as well. Number one, choose to prioritize the gospel of Christ and the kingdom of King Jesus above personal and political preferences. This is hard because we're constantly bombarded by political issues. We're constantly bombarded by the noise of 24-hour news networks. And sometimes it's very hard for us to prioritize the gospel and the kingdom of God above our personal and political preferences. Faithfully navigating an election and politics is a matter of wisdom. And it's a matter of keeping priorities in order biblically. And I've come to this firm conviction in my life, and I'm, I believe it to be true, that if the gospel 
is central in our lives, then politics cannot be central. Because only one thing can be central at one time. So if the gospel and the word of God is central to our lives, then politics cannot be the driving force of our lives. And if politics is the central force of our lives, then the gospel of Jesus Christ by nature will not be. Gospel, God has not called us to focus our lives as the people of God in politics. God has called us to focus our lives on the gospel and to see our politics through the lens of the word of God and not the lens of our personal prosperity or preferences. And this means that sometimes we may be called to surrender temporal prosperity for the good of the gospel. But we serve a king that said, don't lay up treasures on heaven where moth and rust destroy, but lay up treasures. Don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. May we always place King Jesus in our hearts above any and every party platform. And may we as God's people never advocate political policies that are contrary to or in opposition to the gospel and the word of God. Let's prioritize the gospel and the kingdom over our political preferences. Number two, let's choose to steward the gift of your vote in accordance with the commands of God and the good of your neighbor. Let's choose to steward the gift of your vote in accordance with the commands of God and the good of your neighbor. Let's understand that the Bible does not command us as followers of Jesus Christ to vote. And that's because voting was not a luxury that first century Christians or Old Testament Jews enjoyed. So there is no command that tells us to vote. But the Bible does inform us how we should vote. And let me say this too. I heard a prominent Christian pastor say this week that it is a sin against God and a sin against the United States of America for a Christian not to vote. I disagree with that because I don't think you should call something sin that the Bible does not call sin. I do think it's a matter of wisdom. And I do think that we should understand that the gift of democracy and the gift of being able to choose our political leaders is a gift that God in His sovereignty has ensured that we have at this particular time. And therefore, like every other gift, it should be stewarded well. In his book, Before You Vote, David Platt shows this principle that God calls us to steward our vote for the sake of His commands including his commands to do justice, subject ourselves to and support government, seek the welfare of our nation, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. I think that's a great, great principle. We should steward our vote for the sake of the commands of God, to do justice, to subject ourselves and support our government, to seek the welfare of our nation, and to love our neighbors well. And we need to choose to prioritize the glory of God and the good of our neighbor in each and all political issues every time we enter into the ballot box. So as we vote, let's steward our vote in accordance to what God's Word commands and what is in the best interest of our neighbor, even if our neighbor doesn't agree that that's in their best interest. Number three, choose to use your personal voice to speak louder about the glory of Christ and the goodness of His Word than you do about temporal political issues. This is something I've had to learn to do over the last 20 years of my life. God does not call us to be silent on political issues. God does not call us to be passive with regards 
to the issues of the sanctity of life or what constitutes marriage. God calls us to speak clearly and boldly on these issues. He doesn't call us to be silent, but He does call us to be louder about the hope of the gospel than we are about the platform of our preferred political party. He does call us to be more informed about Christ, the gospel, and the Word of God than we are to be fluent in the political talking points of the day. So we need to use our voice to speak louder about the glory of Jesus and the goodness of His Word than we do about being informed and articulate about temporal political issues. Now, political issues may be temporal, but political issues are not inconsequential. As I said before, elections have consequences, and we need to speak clearly as God's people, but my prayer is that our speech will always be grounded in the Word of God and that we would speak more more about the glory of our Christ than we do about the glory of our nation. And I'm concerned that that's not happening in the church today. Number four, let's choose to be an agent of peace and gospel hope in the midst of a broken and toxic political system. Let's understand that God doesn't always call us to win every political battle. And God never endorses a strategy of winning at all cost. God does call us to be peacemakers. We serve King Jesus who came into this world as the Prince of Peace. And we are called in the Scriptures to be those who are agents of peace and hope. Go back to what we talked about in 1 Peter, that we are to be kingdom exiles with a living hope in this world. Let me be clear about this. God is not honored when His people use speech that is inflammatory and grounded in toxicity, outrage, slander, or demeaning people who are fellow image bearers of Him. God is not honored in that. Nor does God endorse our approval, even our silent approval, of political leaders who use these tactics in the political realm. You and I need to commit as the people of God to win the war for the eternal souls of the lost while engaging in short-term political battles. So we need to be agents of peace and hope in the midst of what we said earlier is a broken political system. And then finally, let's choose to prioritize unity in the church around the gospel and the word of God amidst diversity over political opinions and preferences. Let's prioritize here at Central Park unity as brothers and sisters in Christ around Jesus and understand that in the midst of that, we can have diversity in the political opinions of the political preferences of the people in this room. A few weeks ago, I was in a webinar with other Christian leaders and the topic was brought up about the craziness of what is happening in our churches right now because of politics. And one of the pastors that was speaking brought up the fact that many of us have heard already that there have been people who have made conscious choices to leave a church in the last four years because of their disagreement with the political views of either the church leadership or some of the members of the church. Let me say that again. There have been people that have chosen to leave a congregation of brothers and sisters in Christ over the political views of either the church leadership or some of the members. 
These are not people that are leaving the church over issues of biblical compromise. They're leaving over disagreements over political issues like justice, immigration reform, and other secondary issues. Politics is currently dividing people who both claim personal faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And these are people that we will spend eternity in heaven with, but for some reason or another we cannot worship in the same church building. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. God's Word calls us to make every effort to pursue the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He does not call us to uniformity and agreement on all issues. He calls us to unity in the midst of diversity in political opinions and preferences. Now in closing, ultimately, we are not in this world to give full allegiance to a nation, but full allegiance to our King, and that King is King Jesus. His kingdom is eternal, and He is the only King who rules His people. And He's the only King who ruled His people in such a way that He died in their place in order to redeem them from their sin. So may we trust in Him. And if you're in this place today and you never trusted in King Jesus, then it's really hard to have kingdom faithfulness when it comes to political issues because you've never trusted in King Jesus to begin with. And so if you're here today and you want to talk to somebody about trusting in Christ, we want to give you an opportunity to do that. Before we close, would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I want to lead us for just a moment in a time of prayer. And a prayer that is focused on us as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ being faithful to our King in the midst of a culture and a season of political turmoil. But as we pray, I want to invite you, if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, the Spirit of God is speaking to you right now about your need to be forgiven of your sin and to trust in Christ. I want to invite you, before you leave, to come and see me or come and see one of our staff members, and I'll be glad to sit down and talk with you about how you can know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Father, I come to you with a deep and heavy heart right now for my nation, for my country, because... We as, as, a, as a people, as a nation, have departed so drastically from trust in you and so, so drastically from being faithful to that which has been revealed in your word. Father, I know that, that as a people, as a nation, we are in deep and desperate need for, for direction and for spiritual renewal. And that renewal is not going to come Tuesday through the outcome of an election. It's going to come by the people that you have saved and empowered and sent out into this world to be the hope of the gospel. So help us, as the scriptures say, to be as wise as serpent and as innocent as doves. Help us to navigate through some of these difficult climate and toxic conversations. Help us to navigate through some of these complex issues by trusting, number one, in you, by seeking wisdom through your word and by speaking in such a way that is informed, that is faithful to the word, but is also seasoned with grace and hope. May we as your people hope in you. May we trust that the king's heart is a stream of water in your hand and that you direct it where you will. And may we trust that no matter who rules, as Psalm 20 says, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Give us wisdom as we vote this week, we pray for you to empower the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to speak in a very clear and unified way 
this week in our election. And God, help us to be faithful in the outcome of it to show people Jesus. And we pray all these things in His name and for His sake. Amen.